Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I am Cody Dronick, host and producer of Writer's Block. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. This evening, we will be talking to landscape ecologist Kevin Van Tegum, as well as Calgary's own poet laureate, Natalie Meisner. Kevin Van Tegum is a landscape ecologist and a former superintendent of Banff National Park. He has written more than 200 articles, stories, and essays on conservation and wildlife, which have garnered him many awards. He is the author of Bears Without Fear and Wild Roses Are Worth It, Alberta Reconsidered. He lives with his wife, Gail, in Canmore, Alberta. Kevin Van Tegum, welcome to CDSW Writer's Block. Thanks for having me here, Dimpy. So your latest book is called Wild Roses Are Worth It, Reimagining the Alberta Advantage from Rocky Mountain Books. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how this book came to be? Well, um, I, I guess uh, I was between projects working on a, a fairly challenging one, but I was also looking at the fact that I had a body of previously published work that had only come out sort of like in little segments in magazine in a magazine. So uh, I realized that um, in writing for Alberta Views magazine over the last uh, decade or so, uh, both a regular column called This Land and also a, a number of feature articles, that I had a body of work that if I put it together and edited it into the right sequence would actually be greater than the sum of its parts. So so that became this book. This book is really, um, in some ways, an anthology of material previously published in Alberta Views. And um, uh, the title, in many ways, goes with that particular venue because... Uh, when Alberta Views first turned up on the newsstands, I was just blown away by the fact that we had a magazine in Alberta that that that, that, that talked about things that actually matter to Albertans uh, who are not um, totally wrapped up in and absorbed by the oil story. That you know things that deals with with the environment, with social justice, with uh, with um, uh, the stories of, of of normal Albertans living. Uh, Extraordinary lives, and and so it was just neat. Here's this magazine, and then they wanted me to write for them. And mm-hmm. um, looking all these years later, I'm, I'm realizing, well, you know, uh, I think now I see what I was saying, and I think it'll become more obvious if it comes out in this bundled up uh, format as a book. Yeah, there's definitely a bunch of themes that I can see that you keep coming back to in these pieces, and I'm going to try to ask you about several of the ones that that as a reader to me. Uh, seem to really stand out. So you're a landscape ecologist, and and you've spent years observing and cataloging the wild. I was fascinated by what you notice and how you share it. For example, little details like that there were no bugs splattered on your windshield after you drove, uh, you know, 1,200 kilometers east, or, or the essay that talks about leaves and each leaf pulling gases out of the air. Is this um, scientific perspective that you bring to how you observe the world a blessing or a curse? Oh, for me personally, it's a blessing. You know, uh, um, I, you know, 
we're so fortunate to live at a time when there's been so much research and so much study into into the nature of existence, you know, and, and you know, um, when we go out into the, into the foothills or into the prairies or up into the mountains, down by the river, you know, we're, we're, we're surrounded with things that are beautiful, that are worth pondering, but the, the richness that, that, that science brings to it is it actually helps us to understand some of it. And, and you know, um, it's funny, uh, uh, I remember talking to somebody years ago saying, uh, well, you know, I don't believe in God, I'm a biologist. And I was thinking, geez, I'm a biologist, that's why I believe in God. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> spectacular, the, 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 um, the world we live in and, 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 and our obliviousness to it, you know. So I, I think that's one of the things that I, I've been trying to do with my writing is to say, you know, we are surrounded with everyday magic. And that magic makes life so worth living. And it's centered on this place that we call home. Uh, let's pay attention because mm-hmm. it makes us more who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the themes that runs throughout your essays is that magic of ecosystem, that each human, each of us is an ecosystem, host to millions of other creatures, and that as humans, we have this tendency to compartmentalize the ecosystem of the earth that we live in. What are the risks of forgetting that we are all one with this magic and have an impact on it? Well, I, I think the risks, in, you know, are are the things that we live in, live with the unforeseen consequences. The, you know, something like climate change, um, which is throwing, you know, all our bets out the window in terms of how we live and what we can count on from the from from our lives. Um, you know, that's a consequence of this fragmented thinking that doesn't look at chain and uh, you know chain reactions and cause and effect. Um, we see it at all sorts of scales. You know, the, the big flood of 2013, well, you know, that, that didn't just happen by accident. That came off of wounded landscapes where we did a bunch of things, you know, in different compartmental compartments of our society and our economy that we thought made sense. But when you put them all together, they don't. Uh, um, you, you can't log off-road drive, um, uh, overgraze, uh, you know, beat up on, on, on land in a bunch of different ways and expect water to come out of the sky and behave on that land the way it always has. It's not going to mm-hmm. soak in that we've created landscape that it, it, it's going to run off of. So, you know, um, the connections are beautiful and the connections are, are, are um, wonderful ways to sort of expand our universe without even leaving home. But they're also important because um, they all lead to consequence, and they could be positive consequence or negative consequence. Again, we need to be living consciously in this actual place called Alberta if we want to sustain all the things that make us who we are. Mm-hmm. You wrote that that climate change is a far greater threat than any war. What What do you think it will take for people, for Albertans, to believe this and act on it? Well, you know, we're, we're 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 the human species, and there's an awful lot of us out there, and we all have different um, little mental universes that we live in. So uh, I don't think we'll ever uh, connect with a lot of people that just uh, by their basic disposition to want to believe in that sort of stuff. Um, uh, for, you know, uh, as as long as it's a question of belief, and as long as it's uh, um, believing in it, um, challenges people's uh, 
ambitions or values, then, yeah, they're not going to be there. I don't think that um, getting everybody on side is, ne- is needed to, to, uh, to take meaningful action. I, I think, I think um, and if, if I'm wrong, well, you know, don't worry. In uh, another 20 years, uh, everybody will be paying attention. Uh, you know, this is um, a one-way trip. Mm-hmm. To some very serious consequences, and um, uh, we will pay attention sooner or later, and we will act sooner or later. But hopefully, not the way we do things with pandemics, which is we wait till we have a crisis and then we start to do preventive measures. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Your your answer just now, and and a lot of your writing seems to strive for a pragmatic approach, though often weighing opposing points of view and trying to educate the reader. How much of that attempt at balance is informed by your long career um, in the national parks? Well, uh, I I think I think it's impossible to um, get to the stage of life I'm at, the tail end of my sixties here, uh, without having met a lot of people, interacted with a lot of people, seen a lot of things that worked, seen a lot of things that didn't work, and, 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 and you know, also perhaps um, humbled oneself a bit by realizing that the incredible wisdom you had in your 20s and 30s maybe wasn't as wise as you thought. So <laughs> I, I think that national park experience was certainly important because, you, you know, anytime you're in a, a senior position in the public service, you're usually trying to reconcile the interests of a lot of different people. Um, but I, I really think it's been more of my grassroots experiences that have made me understand that um, you can't assume that everybody thinks the same way and you shouldn't want them to think the same way. Uh, what you need to do is to find the things that we have in common while respecting the things that make us different. And Again, what makes us, what we have in common is that we are of this place. And what we mm-hmm. have in common is that this place depends on our ability to uh, understand it and to care and 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 our ability to sort of generate love and care for it. So that's something that you know you don't have to really have to fight to find that part of most Albertans. Um, we can disagree with a bunch of other stuff, but we all care about where we are and we all want to be the best of it, survive. Mm-hmm. And um, that's you know that that sort of goes to the title of the book. Wild roses are worth it. I, um, wild roses are beautiful. They're thorny. They're tangly. Um, they're complicated, but they're everywhere, and they are what defines us, and, and so is everything else about this place. And it's worth it. Kevin and Tegum, you're boldly critical, although always respectfully so, of of a whole host of things that are somehow sacred. You know, corporate agriculture, mining of the eastern slope, our collective kind of foolish faith in oil and gas development bringing another boom and saving us all yet again. But you, you you bring our attention to the things that we have to pay attention to. Do you hope that that dialogue, the storytelling of the dialogue, is going to inspire change? Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think I, I would be doing, uh, you know, putting the effort into producing something like, like this book without... Uh, having the hope that it will change the conversations that we have and that in changing the conversations that that we have, it will change our possibilities to get things right or better. Uh, But I kind of like that. I kind of like writing those challenging pieces because 
um, one of the things that we default to doing, and it's probably partly because we live in such a distracted, busy world, and you know, a lot of times our noses are down at the grindstone, just trying to bring home the bacon, keep the family fed, keep the mortgage paid. You know, we we we, we or 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 we're just um, you know retreating from that and just wanting to be not bothered while we enjoy some recreation and recovery. But as a result, what we tend to do is we tend to let other people tell us how to think and what to think, mm-hmm. and 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 we tend to believe we tend to accept stories at face value. And so I really like writing against that. I really like saying. You know, maybe there's more to this than you've been told. Maybe there's a more Albertan way, a more caring way, a more uh, thought-through way to look at some of the things that we take for granted or that we've been given as received wisdom. Um, You don't get to a different place by thinking the same way about the same things. You get to a different place by figuring out a way to see them differently and think about them differently. And so that's one of the things I try and do with, 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 with the pieces that I write in. In, in uh, wild roses are worth it. I when I read the the piece about you know you talk about how easy it is for that now that we all have cameras in our pockets and we're taking pictures, but what we're forgetting about in taking the perfect picture for our trendy Instagram is um, to observe, and and you write. In doing that, we train our minds to see the world not as a place of meaning and mystery, but as a series of images. And it struck me that in all of your pieces, you are trying to help us train our minds, you know, in the opposite way, to find that mystery and to really think deeply about it. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think I think you're I think you're probably right there. Uh, um, there's there's this challenge we have in um, a society that's grounded in Western science of tending to objectify everything and 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 make it external to us, and 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 it becomes us versus everything else. Um, that somehow being human sets us apart, and you know that's wired into some of our religious views and a bunch of things. And, and it's a problem because um, you know when you're born, um, you're basically just a bundle of potential. You're a bunch of genetics, you know, uh, shaped into a body. And who you are as you grow and mature and, and, and age is shaped by the, the things around you, uh, the, the, th- the things that you respond to, your environment, uh, the, the decisions you make about them. And so in becoming, we become who we are subjectively by engaging in, a, in personal ways with all that stuff that we think of as being objective and outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So from my point of view, I don't see a separation. The whole world is me. Everything that surrounds me, I'm sitting right now on a hill in southwestern Alberta looking at the Livingston Range, and I know and I recognize so many things around me. And, and, and I wouldn't be me if, if they weren't there. I, I, and, and so I think that's the piece we need to, to find is, is not to treat everything as scenery, treat everything as external to ourselves, but to treat everything as, in fact, part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, as the more we learn about it, the richer we become personally because we are building ourselves as we build our understanding of our environment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it would shift everything, wouldn't it? It would shift every decision if we did that. Absolutely, because right now uh, when we consume resources, we're just consuming resources. They're, they are resources. They are out there. But, um, you know... Uh, once you realize that all those things are actually part of yourself, then you become much more careful about how you treat them because 
mistreating them is basically self-abuse, and uh, you're, you're harming yourself when you harm your surroundings. That kind of understanding is something that I've seen. Uh, I've heard expressed to me in different ways by people that ranch in the foothills, by by environmentalists that, that, that fight to save grasslands and, 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 and mountainsides. You know, um, and, and to me, it's, it's, it, it says there are people who are learning to be who they are by recognizing that who they are is where they are, and we need more of those people. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I try and make it happen a little bit. You know. and, and really, that leads us to kind of my last um, batch of questions that I noticed that, that the word stewardship comes up time and again. And at one point you wrote... The Alberta you grew up in, people considered stewardship a way of life, citizenship a duty, and frugality and restraint basic virtues. And you also say that, you know, our our place has that we love has never la- lacked people who love it back. We just don't give them enough airtime. How are we going to give people? like that and people like you more airtime? I don't think you need to worry about giving me more airtime. I just grab it. But <laughs> I think there's, an, there's an awful lot of people out there who, who are unrecognized heroes of, uh, of the place we live in. And, you know, we're seeing it right now uh, with this coal mining controversy in the eastern slopes. You know, like there's a Facebook page now. I forget how many people are on it now, but like it's in the tens of thousands of people that have logged on and, and are expressing themselves on it. And, and these are all people who um, were not invested in, the, in, in a greed-based um, anything goes as long as I've got uh, a bundle of money in my hip pocket view of the place where they live, where, you know, they're stepping up and they're saying, no, 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 this is, this is a bridge too far. You're not going to strip the life off of our eastern slopes in order to get a little bit more carb- carbon to sell, sell to somebody who's going to burn it to make some iron for us. Um, so, and and it's uh, really uniting a bunch of different people, isn't it? It's such a hopeful moment right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, from every walk of life, uh, rural, urban, uh, First Nation, every every part of the political spectrum. And and so, you know, geez, you know, um, this is what I was hoping to do with my book. But by golly, Jason Kenny did it by threatening our resources. <laughs> He had a better he had a better plan than me, <laughs> but it's, it's 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 beautiful to see it happening because what it's doing is it's giving voice to people who care, and 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 it's empowering them because they're realizing they're not alone. And I've never, in some ways, felt more hopeful about the future of Alberta than I do today, which is really strange considering that we're you know in the depths of this endless oil recession where you know we seem to be uh, on this constant treadmill dealing with this coronavirus. Um, you know, everything looks pretty grim on the face of it, and yet things are happening that are telling me that we are becoming closer to who we could be. Uh, maybe I didn't even need to write this book, but if that's the case, then hopefully it's just a gift to people to look at, look at, and and and, and just sort of re- re- recharge themselves with other ways of of loving the place that they live in. Well, I for one am very very grateful that you wrote this book even though I'd read many of these essays before, it changes them to see them all together, somehow complementing and and strengthening each other. And so, and I'm, I'm also really grateful that you made time to come on our show and tell us about it. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you. I'm grateful for you to having invited me. You are listening to 90.9 FM CJSW. This is Writer's Block. Up next, we have Poet Laureate Natalie Meisner. Natalie Meisner, welcome to our second Pandemic National Poetry Month show. Hey, it's me. Thanks for having me on. So you're here today. You have many hats in our community, but you're here today uh, wearing your Calgary Poet Laureate hat at the Stiff uh, Poet Laureate. Tell us a little bit what your experience has been as Poet Laureate. Yeah, this has been uh, perhaps one of the strangest times to have a position like this one, which is a really public position. Uh, When I kind of, you know, when I was talking to the committee and and kind of doing interviews for the job, I realized that I needed to put some flexibility into my thinking and to design a project that would really work for us while we're in lockdown because something like a standard book launch, as we all know, if anybody's launched a book this year, my heart goes out to you because book launches are not the same online. And so for that reason, I started to think of ways that we could connect virtually um, and that led into This Might Help, which is my Poet Laureate project. And uh, it is a collection of audio poems that you can kind of click on and listen to by Calgary poets from ages 10 until um, senior citizens. And uh, the, the idea for that was just to write a poem that might help people cope. Um, and one of the great things that I think you can do with poetry is to try for reframing to try for um, kind of engaging your creative thinking. And it's one of the ways that we can kind of either escape with poetry or reframe any current problem that's under us. So one of the things I did is is to, you know, kind of lean hard into that. How can we connect through a virtual format? And then the other thing that I've really tried to do is to keep saying yes to those invitations as varied as they are. Because I think as much as part of this is working on my own writing, But the biggest part of it is really wearing that hat, as you say, as an ambassador of poetry and ambassador of kind of art and letters and the power, you know, bringing the power of poetry to as many Calgarians and as many Canadians as I can. Mm -hmm. So those have been my kind of, that's been my MO. Yeah, because that whole thing about uh, poetry is that, that there's still so much of the world that is a little bit intimidated by it, isn't it? And as poet laureates, I think the role that you play in the, in communities, you know, across the world is that you sort of um, bring the fun of poetry and take out some of the mystery and make it more accessible to every every person. Because typically, in the before times, <laughs> before this pandemic, you would be expected to, you know share a poem at a city council meeting or at some kind of community event, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I have been doing that virtually, so dropping in on the council meetings, crafting things for, say, you know, Canada Day, for example, crafting crafting a poem sort of designed uh, specifically for the complex nation that Canada is, or dropping in and, and reading a poem, an ode to the city of Calgary, things like that. So while I'm still doing those things, I think you're absolutely right that we need to like allow poetry to be 
as, as public an art form as a sculpture in the middle of the city is. Mm-hmm. I feel like it should be, it should be and, it, and it need not be intending at all. And one of our things that we wanted to do with this project, um, my co-editor and I, we want, really wanted to feature you know, poets who have six, seven books alongside 10-year-olds who are just going, can I do this thing? You know, or senior citizens who are kind of like they have a, a poetic idea and they're sitting home alone and they're crafting it and kind of using the same tools. You know, do they have seven books? Well, not yet, but that's okay. And, and I think you're right. Sometimes it can seem that poetry is this rarefied thing as if it happens like behind closed doors or something, but I don't think it is. I think that any time you take a metaphor and twist it around, even if it's just um, a thought that you have in your head, like the moment that it's there and you've reframed it and you've used metaphor to change the stream of your own thought, you're kind of working with the raw materials of poetry. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is about sound and rhythm. And, uh, you know, often when I've done taught poetry workshops, I say to people, we all actually do know poetry. You don't need to be intimidated by it. The rhythms and the the patterns and the play of it has been in our heads since we were infants. And um, so I loved this this format that you, you know, the way that you presented this project. I'm, I'm, for listeners, I encourage you to jump on the website, thismighthelp.ca. I'm looking at it right now. It's very clean, and, and uh, there's a, a whole long list of amazing names here. Uh, some I recognize and some I don't. I can't wait to um, become acquainted with all of these poems. And what you've done is made it really accessible because people can listen to it, but they can also read it. Yes. Yeah, we wanted to have that feature as well. I mean, we're leaning into the idea that you could click and listen, you know, while you're going for a walk around the reservoir or by the bow. You just kind of hit that play button and you can listen to it on your phone. But then for folks who want to zoom in on the language and have that kind of other experience or as an accessibility feature, you know, if folks are hearing impaired, then they also have access to the pieces on the right-hand side. You can just kind of double tap and the text pops up. Um, So I think that will also encourage re-listening because the thing with all these pieces is I find that, you know, yes, they hit you on the first go-through, but it's, they're even lovelier if you kind of take a bit of time and you return to them and get that lovely layering of meaning that poetry opens itself to. So I'm hoping it'll be, you know, it'll be something that people keep on their home screen or they listen to a couple and then they come back to it because it'll be kind of left up through the rest of my tenure as Poet Laureate. So I'm really, really pleased with the pieces that are on here and the range of them. Um, it just makes my, my heart sing if I go back to them and keep listening to them. So it's been a real joyful project. Very cool. And a few minutes from now, we're going to listen to some of these together so that uh, our CVSW Writers Book listeners get to enjoy them here as well. Um, I'm just wondering, what, what do you think is important about Canada having a National Poetry Month? April is National Poetry Month. Uh, we do that because it was when uh, Al Purdy had his birthday. I think that's the origins of it. Right. Oh, wow. I didn't know. I actually didn't even know that was the origin of it. But, I mean, he's kind of like one of our patron saints of poetry, so that's great. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, like any 
any kind of month we have, like we'll have Black History Month, uh, you know, or we'll have, um, you know, any like uh, any, any month that is meant to highlight um, a very, very important part of history or culture or language. We don't let poetry go at the end of that month, for sure. It's just a kind of a, an awakening. It's an awakening to the fact that we need to highlight it more in our life. And so, you know, um, if you are doing, as I know a lot of folks are, if you're doing the National Poetry Writing Month, the kind of, you know, month-long uh, prompts and you write one poem a day, this can really bleed into your practice for the rest of the year. And it also just encourages folks who might not be readers of poetry to open that door a little bit. And then for them, that month becomes a year. You know, it's, it's, I guess it's, a, it's an opening window or an opening door. Um, not, not, to, not, not meaning that we let poetry go at the end of that, but just a way to, you know, do what, the public, do what public art wants to do. Mm-hmm. Invite people and- in. And that awakening kind of works well with spring, doesn't it? And I just mm-hmm. had a, a an image of a prairie crocus saying, hello, I'm here. Poetry mm-hmm. is here too. <laughs> yes, one little bud bursting up through the soil, right? It's great. It's what really well-timed that way. That's that's a great point. So I'm really curious because, you know, your other hat, uh, aside from being a prophet, uh, Mount Royal, you, you also are known as a... Um, playwright and you've had um, an enormous amount of success with really neat, you know, innovative plays. And I'm just curious about the crossover between theater and poetry. And and I'm noting that your your project has um, some elements of theater in it too, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah, for me, I mean, if we think about it back, you know, back in history, they were one form. Right, poetry. You know, poetry was plays. Plays were poetry. It was, you know, written in iambic pentameter. So, it's only in, you know, in modern era that the two forms have come a little bit asunder. But I think still underneath, you feel those kind of cadences of both. I mean, they're both about listening to the words that come out of people's mouth and remixing them. Like dialogue, to me, is a kind of layperson's poetry. I'm listening for, for dialogue all the time as a playwright. And when somebody says something that kind of catches my ear, it goes in there, um, and I'm, not, I'm never sure. I'm thinking, is that going to come out in a poem or is that going to come out in a play? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they almost seem like one is a long form of the other, or sometimes I'll write a poem and it will stay with me for a couple of years, and I'll realize that I'm working that same metaphor into the play. So I've never really, like, I guess I've never really pulled them apart, and they're both especially the performance poetry. Like I started as a spoken word poet in Halifax and the performing of words and just kind of hearing how the audience breathes while you're performing really informed my practice and it still does. I still don't think a poem is real until I've lit for an audience. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it's become itself. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have that or like, or if you're, do you feel like your work is more on the page or do you have that same performance thing? I think I have that same element but that's also because I grew up in theater, you know. So for me, I don't, I, I don't, I think story is story, and however it comes to you is is how it comes to you. I don't like the siloing off of of things, but you know, I know that some people have strong feelings that are the opposite of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. I could I could never tell you if a poem works or not until I have walked around the room reading it aloud. 
Yeah, I do the same. I, like either I read it to, to you know a small group or read it to a friend or sometimes I record it now, um, you know, for myself and play it back since I mm-hmm. can't I can't be with all my poetry people and read at open mics and that kind of thing right now. So it is sort of the second best thing to read it, but that that's the moment where I can really tell is this thing breathing, just like with a play. I am never sure until an actor voices a part. I'm never sure which line needs cutting or trimming or which one needs expansion until they uh, tell me. So it almost feels like, for me, the print is the blueprint and the real thing is the sound in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way to describe it. Well, maybe we should have a listen to some of these wonderful poems. I think you've got seven clips you're sharing with us on the show, Jay. Um, Which one do you want to start with? Uh, Let's start with And I Am by S. Saibam. One of the things that my co-editor and I, I have a student co-editor, just a graduating student, Audrey Jameson and I, we listen to all of these without their bios. So we listen to everything during the editorial process blind. And this poem is one that just smoked us in terms of the way that it was using both the performance element, uh, it was using repetition, it was using imagery, it was engaging with cultural history and current events, and we were just both really taken by it. And then we found out that this is written by a 16-year-old student at Central Memorial. Uh, and we were just kind of like, wow! Let's have a listen. And I am a cardboard cutout of every contour of shoulder blades through a t-shirt. And I am every red-haired pretty boy, every Luke David McFreddy, and I am running faster even though my lungs ache, and I am doing push-ups by mistake, and I am listening to punk rock, and I am baking cookies for my mom, and I am on TV, and I will never see myself on TV and I am drowning in my own self-pity, and I am not funny, and I am not pretty, and my hair is not red, and my voice is not mine, and my body flat curve, flat curve in all the wrong places, liminal spaces, gas stations. I am a roadside attraction. I am dead in a dumpster. I am tied to a fence. I have... Nothing but the stars and mountains and trees and God and trees and stars. And God doesn't exist. And I would rather kiss the hands of every man with blood on his knuckles than tell you I'm one too. I'm every blue-haired pretty boy. Every Stuart Paul, Matthew, Jamie. Every single crying baby. Kiss my hands, kid. Beg me for forgiveness. That was S. Saibam and her poem, And I Am. The voice was so strong in this one that I I pictured somebody um, with possibly a lot more life experience than a 16-year-old when I heard this. It just got such depth. All right, who's up next? Um, so let's move into Just a Kid. So this one is so interesting. This is written by a 10-year-old, Teo Dummer, who's, I think, one of his parents, you know, kind of assisted in finding the contest, but totally written by Teo. And what did I love about this one? I mean, this one, you could tell that this is written by a younger writer, unlike the one that we just heard, which could really have been, you know, coming from coming from somebody much older, maybe. This one, though, uh, it's working with 
irony, you know, it's saying, it's kind of leaning into this idea of I can't, you know, it starts, you start to listen to it and you think that the kid is going to be saying I can't do anything. And that's the position that we're all sort of placed in, right? We think we're helpless. And then as the poem unfolds, you start to realize that this 10-year-old kid is unfolding all these possibilities of what can be done. Um, and so as we were mentioning earlier, Dymphony, that uh, poetry can be raw material in the hands of everybody, I thought, like, here are the elements. Here's somebody at a very young age, you know, using the building blocks of irony, using the building blocks of repetition and great imagery, and we were kind of, uh, both my co-editor and I just thought it was a fabulous piece. Here's Tam Dumbler reading I'm Just a Kid. I'm just a kid. I love my food. I love pizza and pasta, apples and pies, ice cream and mochi, burgers and fries. I'm just a kid. What happened out there? No restaurants are open, no McDonald's to munch, no pool parties to jump in, no picnics for lunch. I'm just a kid. Why, oh why? COVID hit the world, food lineups grew, the stores closed down, and vaccines, we need a slew. I'm just a kid. What can I do? Plant a big garden, stay home all day, wear a clean mask, Watch anime, 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 anime. I'm just a kid. What can I do? Baking classes, food drives, help neighbors make pizza. I'm just a kid. That's what I'll do. You know, this one, this one just, you cannot help but smile. There's just such a crackle (laughs) to this, right? (laughs) Yeah. Such confidence. When do we lose that? It's too bad we lose that as we get older. Yeah, or do we have to? Do we have to? That's maybe the question that it's asking us, or that's the question that I think a lot of poets are trying to keep their child alive. We know that kind of like inner kid in us, as you mentioned, we need to keep like the way we work with rhyme scheme and rhythm and the sense of play and language needs to stay alive. The next one that I had chosen was a piece called Blinds, and this is by a 25-year-old South African-born Nigerian poet, Aditola Adidipi, and uh, also going by a lot of poetry, aka a lot of poetry. Um, And this piece, what I loved about this piece was, again, like the way it was performed, the voice and the sense of kind of inhabiting the poem itself. As soon as you hit play on it, you're kind of like, whoa, this poem is going to take me someplace, and it really does. Um, so the use of language in this one, uh, the real beautiful like way that the poet inhabits the poem, uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay, let's have a listen to Blind. I've been sitting in the dark for so long. I find it comforting. I find it warm. In a place where I can't be seen, a place where I can't be hurt, where only I can hear my sorrowful songs. However, I still find myself growing at an angle, like a plant whose leaves desperately search for the source of growth, the promise of future, the hope of tomorrow. I opened the blinds today. And just like my tiny plant sprouting in the darkness, I found myself leaning towards the light. You know, this one, 
This one is one of those ones where you wish that radio had a rewind button, you know? There's, it, it, it has a goosebumpy quality for me. And I love that. That's what poetry should do to us, right? It should just raise goosebumps on your flesh with the power of the words. That's what we mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, we touched on it earlier, but hearing all of the voices uh, brings so much to it. Hearing somebody writing in read in their own voice and feeling their passion and their heart and and everything they they bring to it is just really a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I think it really works to have the poet themselves performing it. Um, the other thing that I really wanted with this project is to keep it to audio. I mean, there's some great video poems out there, but I just love the intimacy myself of listening to the voice of the poet. I feel like there's something that I can get out of that, just hearing their voice in my ear. Um, and maybe it's also because there's so much so much that we have to do on screens right now. I really wanted the relief of that. And as I keep listening to it, I think I'll go back to it more because it's audio and it's you mm-hmm. know just the vocals of the poet. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, that's something marvelous you've hit on we are zoomed and watched out in some ways and just being able to you know take it for a walk as as you mentioned okay and who have you picked for our next clip uh the poem that we're going to next is my station by terry Mullane, and this is a writer from calgary um who has written one book of poetry and the piece itself, it has like really strong visuals off the bat. And just as it mentions, it takes you onto a train. It's one of those pieces that starts in a bit of a darker place. But this is one of the things that I love about poetry is that we can admit despair. Like we can admit those kind of the, you know, those darker stations of life and then get off the train at a different spot. And so it kind of takes that central metaphor um, Let's us let us cope with some of those darker feelings that we have, and then takes us someplace else too. Here's my station by Terry Mullane. My station, by Terry Mullane. The train's black soot, tobacco pipe drippings, coated the country a garret, a stitched black scar picked raw on its incessant tight schedule to unload hope and money scams. I had no plan. No poster destination, for now I preferred to be alone, holding on to my despair. Despite hunger and my bones rattling upon the boxcar's metal floor, she kept rocking me to sleep, moved me down the line. Waking drifts, intermittent dreams, starving visions, diffuse apparitions streaming through an open sliding door, visions of deities and golden harvests. I was from nowhere, going nowhere. An end-of-the-line default, wishing someone would intervene and give me a name, a home, a station to call my own. When I I listened to this one a couple of times, I could really imagine this station, you know, this journey. The beauty of of poetry is that it takes you through a whole movie in just such a short space, or it can, right? And you can... Mm -hmm feel it and smell it and okay so next up okay so next up i have someday this will all make sense by kendall bistrison 
And uh, this piece grabbed me for its story. I mean, one of the many things that a story can do is, uh, sorry, one of the many things that a poem can do is visit a story upon us in a very short time. But it also can just open the door to a ton of emotion. It's like as if you could read a novel in five minutes and come away with the same emotional punch. So I thought it was such a wise poem in a certain way, so empathetic, so wise, like so emotionally rich. Um, and at the same time, it gave us all these different ways to look at youth and to look at uh, experience. And I just thought it opened a ton of doors on a really important topic. And uh, it just made me fall in love with it. Yeah. Someday, this will all make sense. When I was 15, my best friend wanted to die, and I did not know. I could not see his hurt because I never wanted it to be there in the first place. A boy whose eyes once radiated warmth, whose smile offered solace, had become the vacant shell of a not-quite man, a boy I didn't recognize, and I said nothing. Because I am a coward. Because I wanted it to go away. Because I feared death and he feared life, but he, ever the warrior, would do the impossible. He would start by surviving, and then he would begin to live, and after a whirlwind of adolescent euphoria and trauma alike, he would blow out the candles on his 21st birthday cake. But there are days of doubt, weeks of isolation where thoughts wander to dark what-ifs, glimpses of what could have been had he been as weak as I. What could I have done? Where were the signs? Did I kill him? No, they say. A choice is a choice. And yet I made the choice to turn a blind eye while he filled up a bathtub. And I made the choice to deafen myself with the static in the moments before the needle hits the first song on that first record for the last time. Yet we lower the casket mourning his choice while daring to believe we could not have done more. An empty chair. A smaller circle. Tears shed over a tragedy, over what could have been, but not over the person that was. The real world doesn't stop when his heart does, but mine will never be the same again. I am dead on departure, cold and despondent, buried and mourned. This is the price I pay for my ignorance. I lay, but I do not sleep, tormented by a boy both deader and stronger than I, and as my burning eyes draw to a fruitless close, I allow myself a moment to turn back the clock. We are fifteen, and nothing is forever. We are 15, and our future is marked with insurmountable potential. I have seen it, dear friend. I have lived it. And it's only living when we take our bows together at our sold-out senior production. It's only living from the passenger seat of midnight drives when you're behind the wheel. It's only living when your bright green car is in our high school parking lot half an hour before anyone else's, because the view of the sunrise from the window adjacent to our lockers is too beautiful for either of us to miss. Live with me, and if that's too much to ask, simply live and we'll figure out the rest as we go. We will march across that makeshift stage at the front of our high school stuffy gymnasium and grasp our diplomas. We will throw our caps in the air as if they could reach the moon because anything will be possible. You will be a musician, an activist, a fucking warrior. You will tell your story unashamed because there is nothing to be ashamed of. Take my hand. Take it now so we can walk this road together. And when we reach our destination, I promise this will all make sense. You're right. This this one really smokes you right between the eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's what matters too. Having you know, with poetry, I think having a space to to be able to look at the things that are hard to look at. Yeah. 
and look at them, you know, look at them when you're able to and with with love sometimes, with regret sometimes. I mean, one of the one of the things that I I often talk about when I'm teaching poetry or even if I'm, you know, even if I'm editing my own stuff is not to rule out any range of human emotion. A lot of folks think that, you know, they turn to poetry when they're dealing just with tougher stuff. And this is true. It's capable of coping with the full range, but it's also capable of coping with extreme joy. Like it's almost as if, to me, when I have something that's a big feeling, you know, whether it's like, you know, wherever it lands on the register of human emotion, when it's big, I want to go to poetry first rather than fiction or another form. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, hey, that the smallness of the the shape of it is – is perfect for this huge scope of the emotion of it. Mm-hmm. Happy or really sad. Yeah, happy or sad. We're really seeing that now. Like there's a real kind of return or to poetry in in times like this, I think. It's like I don't know if somebody said this recently. I think I read it and I can't remember where that poetry has broad shoulders or something like that. It's just uh Oh, I love that line. That's great. Yeah, I don't think it's me. I don't, and I can't put my fingers on it right now. But I, I read that in an article recently, um, that it has this sort of broad shoulders, or it can, it can hold a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. What does the next poem hold for us? Okay, so the next one that I chose is "Speaking in Thumbs" uh, by Jill Armstrong. And what did I love about this one? This one is just linguistic virtuosity i mean sometimes what you want in a in a poem is you just want to dive into language and it just takes a word like a swiss army knife and uses it in a whole bunch of different ways and just kind of opens possibilities within possibilities and kind of like it it sort of twists your brain around in a bunch of different directions which i really enjoy so it was just uh yeah and and i thought like i have a a real relation to words themselves. When somebody uses a word that I haven't heard in a while, I, I, I kind of think yum, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's listen to some yummy speaking in thumbs by Jill Armstrong. Speaking in thumbs. I won a language, a heard vocabulary. No music, no instructions. I won an a cappella prize a delicate, fine, tunable instrument made from rhythm-heavy phrase and wasp, paper, whisper, best, amplified from the industrious diaphragm, the timpani we wear between organs sharpened by lip geometry and measured breath. I absorbed a language without translation. I lost a word, and then I lost most of them. My mouth became meat, hangs from bone, hangs from meat, an organ of vowel, taste, and sigh. I ordered a language without a menu, an incubator for the incomplete, a fallen architect of rhyme. In the mirror yawned a chamber unquired, a branch unbarked, and no percussion, but, but anxious teeth and a ticking tongue clocking the rate of unravel. Thought an opus in chains, raged, and in the echo chamber behind my face, small boys wrestled, tested dominance, smelled like wet dogs, their testosterone a fuel they knew nothing about. I was forced to fit my ideas with gravity boots. 
until lightning, that bright sneak, channeled down the wiring between my walls to smolder under the timpani we wear between organs in the basement until I erupt in significant form, rounder than a shout, more folded than a swan. Consonant-free cacophony has a pressurized smell, deep crimson with no surface. My nose tastes blood, running too thick through air running too thin, at the tops of mountains and six-story walk-ups. Sound needs rivers to turn, corners, consonants to deflect it and wrap vowels around. My mouth became unworthy of room service, a derelict in the lobby in a hotel of the chewed lip. And in the echo chamber behind my face, small boys wrestled, tested dominance, smelled like wet dogs, their testosterone a fuel they knew they could light with a match. That that whole sense of, you know, what is the the perfect word for this idea? How do I keep reworking a poem until all the words come together in just the way that they are meant to? I feel like this poem kind of epitomizes that. Yes, I wonder if it is in a way even more yummy uh, for writers or for folks who've spent a long time looking for that perfect word, right? It's like there's a communion there. Yeah, it's it's the, it's the word nerd poem. <laughs> it's the word nerd poem, yes. Yeah, the poet or the writers, you know, it's like when something they call it writerly or it's enjoyed even more so by writers, I think it has that quality, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, and our last poem for for this, and, and listeners, there's a wealth more of these on the website, so make sure that you, uh, after this interview is over, you make sure you check out thismighthelp.ca, audio poems, um, a poetry project organized and curated and edited by Natalie Meisner, our current Calgary Poet Laureate. What have we got to uh, take us out? So the last selection that I have for you is one of the first pieces that really jumped out at me. Uh, This one's called Banking on Democracy by Paolo da Costa. And what did I love about this piece? I mean, the exit line from this piece, and an exit line in a poem is such an art, right? We're tempted to do too much for the reader sometimes or to wrap it up with a bow. And yet, if you don't get the right exit line, um, then you kind of leave the reader hanging. Like, this exit line just slayed me. I was just kind of like, whoa. Uh, And you'll hear it when we get to it. So that was one of the things. But it also set this picture. I felt like I was diving into a painting when I heard the beginning, you know, when when the writer is kind of laying out the picture that you're falling into. And it also kind of lulls you along. Like, you're not quite sure it builds meaning in layers. You're not quite sure where it's going. It's got this element of mystery. Uh, and then it just kind of lays out a whole stream of possible meanings for you at the end. And this is one that I challenge folks. I think you have to listen to it a couple times for it to land fully. Mm-hmm. All right. We have Banking in Democracy by Paulo da Costa. Banking on Democracy. Rack of lamb in boss pear sauce, chanterelle mushrooms in white wine, plop of champagne cork, and crackling fire devouring logs as fast as fed, 
Brent sits two months behind his thoughts. The decrepit truck hibernates in a snowed-in back alley, waits a new carburetor. The diamond light drapes candle chandeliers, glimmers on other precious hands. She dips her focaccia bread in the pond of olive oil and balsamic vinegar. He delicately licks her ring finger. Her lips tingle. Tonight he shows her how much he loves her. This is the promise of this century, this America, where they too, for a day, can be king or queen, regardless of their surname, the color of their skin, if clean, if American Express. His subtle wishes are anticipated by a gray-haired waiter who promptly refills bohemian crystals, who could be his father and calls him sir. Champagne flutes are raised, toast to prosperity and love. The bubbles rise to the rim as the orchestra blows the first notes on the metal brass. His feet tap. He thinks he is free and medieval walls are now history as he surveys the room and knows he lives in a country where you may ask anyone to dance. I think this is this is one of those poems where again the the voice of the writer adds so many layers of meaning to it as well. Yes, it does. It pulls you right inside and then meaning's a crew. You're kind of like enjoying, you know, the visual unfolding or the picture that's unfolding around you and then just kind of some of the deeper some of the layers of meaning in the piece just kind of like not sneak up on you. They just kind of crew gently. Um, and it's really, yeah, really gorgeously crafted, I think. Yeah. Well, you've given us such a bouquet of wonderful poems. And again, there's, there's far more to, to look at. Thanks so much, Natalie Meisner, for being on CJSW Writer's Block today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Demsony. It's really been a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into Writer's Block this month. And bringing us to the top of the hour is Broke and Broken by local band Bouquet. Cause I'm broke and I'm broken 
No, I'm not.